if something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Well, it invites you to be skeptical, to ask, well, what is the catch? What is it that I am missing? What are they not telling me about that job? Is that offer of a free vacation or telling me I've won this large sum of money simply a way to scam me out of my personal information? Well, it's a, it's a warning not to believe everything that you hear. If something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. It probably is, but not always. And case in point is that the good news of the gospel is not too good to be true. Let me repeat that. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not too good to be true. Well, now, it can sound too good to be true, can't it? It would sound too good to be true that God would humble himself by taking on human flesh, that he would come in the form of a baby, that he would come in the, form, the person of Jesus Christ and not just take on human flesh but, but die a, a painful and a gruesome death on a cross to suffer and die to pay the penalty that you and I owed for our sin? It sounds too good to be true that we could have eternal life by repenting of our sins and believing in Jesus. It sounds too good to be true that, that God would adopt lowly sinners into his family, that we would become joint heirs with Jesus Christ, that he would give us every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. But it is true. Jesus is who he says he is. Eternal life is offered to all who believe in his name. And these are the truths that Luke wants you to see. It is why he wrote the gospel of Luke. So if you haven't already, but if you have Bibles with you, you can go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter one. We're gonna be in Luke chapter one. And in these opening verses of Luke's gospel, we see the angel Gabriel make promises that sound too good to be true. Uh, first, he, he promises an elderly barren couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, that they will have a child. And not just any child, but one, a prophet who will prepare the way for the coming of the long-awaited Messiah. Well, then a young virgin named Mary is promised that she will give birth to that Messiah, to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Well, Unsurprisingly, those to whom these, these promises are made uh, find them hard to believe or at least hard to understand, and yet they are true. Well, if you haven't figured it out, we are, are going to begin a sermon series in Luke today. The plan over the next couple of months is to preach uh, through Luke chapter 1 all the way through Luke chapter 9. These Chapters begin with Jesus' birth and go all the way through his ministry in, in Galilee, really before he starts to turn and, and head towards Jerusalem and, and head towards his inevitable death. Uh, so Lord willing, we'll uh, eventually finish Luke, but after we get through chapter 9, we may take a, a break and go study some other portions of Scripture before coming back. But in this journey through Luke, we will see that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not too good to be true. It is good news for all. And my prayer is that you will see that it is good news for you. Uh, so this being our first sermon in Luke, and because Luke opens up with a bit of an introduction to his book, I want to I start by giving a little background and context for the Gospel of Luke before we just jump into the heart of our text today. Uh, so please follow along as I read Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. 
many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us. Just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us, so it also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. Oh, well, we, we know that the author of this gospel is Luke, and we know from the New Testament that Luke was a, a Gentile Christian, a physician by trade, and a traveling companion of Paul on his missionary journeys. Uh, Luke wrote both Luke and Acts. He actually wrote them as kind of like a two-part volume. They were intended to go together, and taken together, Luke and Acts recount Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, as well as uh, once you get to Acts, really the beginning of the church and the spread of the gospel following Jesus' ascension. Uh, we see from these opening verses here in, in Luke chapter 1 that Luke wrote to a man named Theophilus. Uh, we don't know who Theophilus is. Many have speculated that he is a high-ranking official because of the way Luke addresses him. He says he addresses him as most excellent Theophilus, but we're not sure. Uh, but at the same time, most also believe that Luke had a wider audience in mind than just Theophilus, uh, that he likely was writing to a wider audience of other Gentile Christians like himself uh, to explain the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Luke does tell us the purpose of his writing of this gospel in, in verse 4 there. He says, he wrote, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. Uh, so Luke wanted to confirm to Theophilus, he wanted to confirm to any who might read his gospel in the future, uh, that what they had heard about Jesus, uh, that which they had maybe believed, was actually true. He wanted to assure them about the things of Jesus Christ. He wanted to assure them of their faith, to give them assurance in Jesus Christ, to assure them about the reality of the God-man, Jesus Christ and that he really was God in the flesh, and that salvation truly could be found in Jesus alone. Well, Luke does this as, as he writes in verse 3 by investigating and writing an orderly account of the things that had happened. Uh, so writing an orderly account of the things that had happened in Jesus' life. Uh, so Luke wrote really from the perspective, uh, not just as a historian, but in many ways Luke wrote as a historian. Uh, we see that he, uh, throughout his gospel, and we see it in our text today, that he provided a verifiable historical details. So in, in verse 5 of our text, Luke provides a timeline and a historical reference point for his readers um, that they can go and actually verify. He says that what he is writing occurred during the days of King Herod. Uh, so he gives you a, a timeline. He gives you an, a, a historical fact that could be verified. And we also see in verse 1 that he consulted other accounts of Jesus's life as he was putting together his gospel. It's very likely that the gospel of Mark had been written uh, at this time. And so it's likely that, that Luke was aware of Mark's gospel when he wrote. Uh, we see in verse two that he took into account the, the testimony of eyewitnesses as he was putting together his account, just like any good historian would do. And as he writes in verse 1, and as we will see this week, he focuses heavily on how Jesus' life is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, uh, that there were promises made long ago, hundreds, sometimes thousands of years before Jesus came in the flesh, 
uh, that he fulfilled by coming. So Luke sought to provide certainty to his readers about what they had seen and heard through careful historical investigation. And the inescapable conclusion by the end of Luke's gospel is that Jesus is who he says he is. He is the person to whom the Old Testament scriptures point. He is the God who took on human flesh. He is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, who gave his life as a ransom for many. So Luke provides a compelling account of who this Jesus is, and he encourages you that Jesus came as a savior, not just for the nation of Israel, not just for the popular, and not just for the wealthy or influential, but also for the poor, the needy, the humble, and the nations. And Luke's account, more than anything else, invites you to believe, to be certain of these things that you have seen and heard and to be certain of the things that are written in his gospel. And so that is my prayer for you as we study Luke's gospel, that you may be certain of the things that you hear, or maybe the things that you have heard about the life of Jesus Christ and who he is. Uh, So with that, uh, let's go ahead and and start our journey through Luke's gospel. We're going to look at verses 5 through 38 this afternoon. We're going to look at at verses 5 through 38. So please follow along as I begin reading in verse 5. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. When his division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, it happened that he was chosen by Lot according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. At the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people." How can I know this? Zechariah asked the angel, for I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Now listen, you will become silent and unable to speak until the days these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, amazed that he stayed so long in the sanctuary. When he did come out, he could not speak to them. Then they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He was making signs to them and remained speechless. When the days of his ministry were completed, he went back home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and kept herself in seclusion for five months. She said, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. 
And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, how can this be since I have not had sexual relations with a man? The angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who is called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. See, I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it happen to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. I have uh, three points from this text that I would invite you to consider this afternoon. Uh, The first is a miraculous work, a miraculous work. The second is a mighty son, a mighty son. And the third is a mixed response a mixed response, a miraculous work, a mighty son, and a mixed response. And uh, the main idea from the text is that God miraculously intervened in history. God miraculously intervened in history to bring about his promised plan of redemption by sending his son, Jesus Christ, that you might believe in him. God miraculously intervened in history to bring about his promised plan of redemption by sending his son, Jesus Christ, that you might believe in him. So first, a a miraculous work. Uh, Well, the the main focus of the text, as I I trust that you saw as we were reading through it, is the angel Gabriel's announcement of two upcoming births. The birth of John the Baptist to the priest Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, and the birth of Jesus to a young virgin named Mary. Well, there are are many similarities between these two accounts. Both births are announced by the angel Gabriel. Both Zechariah and Mary respond in fear when Gabriel initially visits them, as do most in the biblical narrative when uh, an angel appears. Gabriel reassures both of them and tells them that they have no need to fear. Uh, He tells them uh, both about conceptions that will be miraculous, that will be the work of the Lord, He tells them both of their babies will be great, uh, though as we will see, the text indicates that Jesus will certainly be greater than John. Uh, Both are given their names by God, and uh, the list of similarities in these two accounts uh, goes on. Uh, So Luke, I think, puts these two accounts side by side for a reason, and I'm preaching them together for a reason. And those reasons are these two accounts show God's miraculous work, God's miraculous intervention into history to bring about his promised plan of redemption. These two accounts are similar, as we just saw, but there are also, as we will see, subtle differences between these two accounts, accounts that serve to magnify the person of Jesus Christ. He is at the center of Luke chapter 1. And so I want you to notice, and I I hope in the preaching you will come to appreciate that the text draws our attention to Jesus. The text doesn't draw our attention to Mary. It draws 
it draws it to Jesus. So when I say Jesus's conception is miraculous, uh, I am not, and I repeat, I am not teaching the doctrine of the immaculate conception of Mary. Uh, I think that is a false belief. The Bible nowhere teaches Mary was also born free of sin. And so as, as I walk through Luke chapter one, I want you to see that these verses are directing our attention to, to the person of Jesus, not primarily Mary, though she's an important figure in this narrative. Well, the, the time between the end of the Old Testament, which, which ends with the book of Malachi, and the beginning of the New Testament, which opens with the Gospels, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, well, well, that period between the two is often called the silent period, a period that lasted something around 400 years. Uh, there were no records of prophets during that time to uh, the people of God. There is no recorded miraculous workings of God. Uh, it's called the silent period because God seemed silent towards his people. But with Gabriel's arrival on the scene, that era of silence was suddenly and amazingly over. God was again at work among his people, announcing the birth of the Messiah and, and ushering in his kingdom. God was miraculously working to fulfill his long-awaited promise of a savior to send a Messiah to his people. Uh, we see this not in just Gabriel's appearance, but also as, as particularly as we read through Luke chapter 1, both this week and next week, uh, in the work of God's Spirit. We also see it in the work of God's Spirit. Uh, John, it says in verse 15, will be filled with the Spirit. In verse 35, Gabriel tells Mary that the Holy Spirit will overshadow her. That is how she will conceive. That is how she will conceive of, uh, uh, will, will come to bear Jesus. So God had, had promised in the Old Testament a, a future outpouring of his spirit. It's part of the promises of the new covenant. Uh, it will reach its kind of culmination at Pentecost when the spirit is poured out on the disciples. Uh, but already we see God's spirit is active. Well, there are other clear signs of God's miraculous intervention in, in these verses, in these opening verses of Luke's gospel. Uh, look again at verse 7. Uh, Luke points out that Zechariah and Elizabeth had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. In other words, there is no scientific explanation or, or natural explanation of this pregnancy that Zechariah and, and Elizabeth had. Uh, Elizabeth was barren. She was unable to conceive. Both Zechariah and Elizabeth were old. They were past their childbearing years. In fact, as we see in verse 18, this is the, the basis for Zechariah's doubt uh, about the words of the angel Gabriel to him. How is it possible that he and Elizabeth could conceive? They're far too old. Well, we get the answer to Zechariah's question, not immediately, but we get it in verse 37 when Zechariah tells Mary, for nothing will be impossible with God. This was not just true for the conception of John the Baptist and Jesus, but uh, that statement is true for God's entire plan of redemption. Uh, how can you know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed that Luke invites you to see? How can you be certain that God would really take on human flesh, that Jesus is who he says he is, that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin, that he was raised from the dead and is now ruling and reigning at the right hand of God the Father? Uh, how can you be sure that God freely offers salvation to all? How can you be sure that God's enemies can be reconciled to him through repentance and faith? 
Now, how can you be certain of these things? Well, it's because nothing is impossible for God. The good news of the, the gospel that salvation has come in Jesus Christ would be too good to be true, except for the fact that nothing is impossible with God. I mean, in many ways, uh, that statement is at the foundation of the Christian faith. If, if you have ever been around little kids, you know that, that very young kids, toddlers and, and younger, often think that their parents can do anything, that their parents know everything, that their parents can fix anything. It's not because they have, have seen their parents solve every problem in the world, but because they believe nothing is impossible for their parents. They can do virtually nothing. Uh, and there's these people uh, that they have been born to who can seem to do quite a lot. Uh, so they think that nothing must be impossible for their parents. Now, brothers and sisters, this is to be our attitude towards God. Uh, nothing is impossible for him. Uh, in, our, in the case of our parents, we, we grow up and we figure out that that is, is not true. They're not quite as competent as we once believed. Uh, but uh, that truth is eternally true about God. Well, God's miraculous intervention in history was, was not limited to the fact that John the Baptist was conceived by an elderly barren couple. In fact, the, the, the very fact that Zechariah was even serving in the temple that day was a sign of God's miraculous work. Uh, a priest might have, might have the opportunity to burn incense in the temple once in their lifetime. It was not something that they were doing week after week. Priests were doing it week after week, but one particular priest might have that opportunity once in his lifetime. And wouldn't you know, Zechariah is picked by Lot on that very day, that very week, to go in and serve in the temple and burn incense. God was at work. And of course, when we turn our attention to Gabriel's announcement to Mary, we find that Jesus' birth is even more miraculous than John's. John is conceived by an elderly barren couple, but Jesus is born to a virgin. Mary asked Gabriel how it was possible for her to give birth when she had never had sexual relations with a man before. Gabriel tells her it will be by the power of God as the Holy Spirit will overshadow her. And then in in verse 36, to assure Mary about the things that he has spoken, uh, he, points, he points to what happened with Elizabeth as, oh, if Elizabeth could have a baby, know that nothing is impossible with God. Well, brothers and sisters, I want you to just to take a moment to marvel at the fact that there is nothing that is impossible for God. When you pray, you are praying to a God for whom nothing is impossible. When you despair of your, your current circumstances and you are anxious for tomorrow, know that nothing is impossible for God. He may not miraculously intervene in your circumstances in the way he did here. He could. He may not. But regardless, his grace is sufficient for you. When you despair of your sin, know that nothing is impossible for God. He can save you even from your most heinous and terrible sin because nothing is impossible for him. And yet, even as I, I say those things to you, even as that is absolutely true, I do not want you to miss that these opening verses of Luke's gospel are about Jesus. They are not fundamentally about you. 
These verses are not teaching you that you should ask God to send an angel to speak to you. You should not be looking for angels to speak. God has spoken to you and speaks to you now through his word. These verses are not a promise that God will favor you with earthly blessings. These verses are not a promise that God will fulfill the longings of your heart if you just patiently wait, that he will provide a a long-awaited spouse or a a long-awaited child or a long-awaited job. The point of these verses is not that if you pray for many years with enough faith that God will answer your prayers like he answered the prayers of Zechariah and Elizabeth for a child. God chose to answer their prayer, and God chose to wait to answer their prayer for many years, not that they might be rewarded, but that he might be glorified, that his miraculous work might be seen. The answer to their prayers was not a reward for their faithfulness, although the text says that they were faithful and righteous, but it was so that God might be glorified. The point of these verses The point of Luke's gospel is to direct your eyes to Jesus. The Bible is not fundamentally a book about you. It is a book about God and his redemptive work in Jesus Christ. These verses are are here to point you to Jesus so that you would see him for who he is and that you would praise him for who he is and what he has done. They should cause you to rejoice in your Savior And so Luke points to these two miraculous conceptions, these two miraculous babies, these two babies that will be great. And he points to many other miracles of Jesus throughout this text that you may be certain of what you have seen and heard about him. That Jesus is who he says he is. And they are here so that you might believe. Well, that brings me to the second point of the sermon this afternoon. So the first was a miraculous uh, work. The second, a mighty son. So these miraculous conceptions and births of John and Jesus do not just reveal that God is is miraculously intervening in human history. He, He certainly was doing that, that he was miraculously intervening in history to bring about his plan of redemption. But they also reveal to us something about the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, Look again at verses 16 and 17. Uh, Gabriel, speaking to Zechariah, says, He, he being John, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous, to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. So what Gabriel is saying in that pronouncement is that John's role will be to go before the Lord and make people ready, to make people ready for the coming of the Lord. John is the one who will come in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the people to God. That pronouncement, that reference back to Elijah is itself a reference back to to Old Testament prophecies about the one who would come to prepare the way of the Lord. So as As Gabriel is prophesying about John, he is is showing that something great is happening. Uh, Old Testament prophecies are being fulfilled. God's promised plan of redemption is beginning to unfold. And ultimately, uh, Gabriel in these words and John in his ministry is pointing forward to another who is to come. John's role was to prepare the way for another. Well, so it might help you to think about Uh, celebrations on New Year's Eve. So 
uh, think of the last time you celebrated New Year's Eve. Uh, well, what generally happens or what many people do is they go party for many hours. They spend the entire New Year's Eve evening uh, enjoying themselves. They may go to a restaurant with friends. They may have people over to the house. They may go to a big city to, to see a fireworks show. Uh, but really, everything is just a prelude. Everything that happens in the evening is just a prelude to what is going to happen at midnight. At midnight, depending on where you are, fireworks are going to go off, a, a ball is going to drop for the last few seconds, and people are waiting for the coming of the new year. That is the, the true celebration. Everything else, all the music, the dancing, whatever it is, is just preparation for the main event. So as you're celebrating early in the night, you know the best is yet to come. Uh, those great fireworks are going to be held off until midnight comes. Uh, basically, everything else is just waiting for that one moment. It's just preparing you for something greater. Also, as amazing as John's birth is, it is just preparing you. This text, Luke is, and this text is just preparing you for something greater. A greater birth. A greater person. As great as John is, he is just the preparation for someone greater. And Luke wants you to see in every way that Jesus is greater than John. Well, the text shows that not only is Jesus greater than John, that John is born to an elderly couple, Jesus is born to a virgin, his birth is greater. But it doesn't just show you that, it also shows you some other things about this person of Jesus Christ. Well, Gabriel tells Mary that Jesus will be and is the Son of the Most High, or in other words, the Son of God. So in, in verse 32, Gabriel says about Jesus that he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Well, this reference to the Most High is a reference to God. God is the Most High. This is made clear in verse 35 uh, when Gabriel tells Mary, therefore the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And friends, you should, you should know, and I want to be abundantly clear, that when the Bible says that Jesus is the Son of God, it is not describing Jesus as a son in a way that, that you might think of him. It is not describing Jesus as a son in the way our, our Muslim friends think of Jesus. That is not what the Bible means when it calls Jesus the son of God. He wasn't created by God. Jesus is not less than God. Jesus is God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is of the same essence and nature of the Father. Jesus has all the same attributes in equal measure as the Father. Jesus has existed from all eternity. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that Jesus is God himself. The Son of God is a title for the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is equal with the Father. Just to give you a few examples of this, in Isaiah chapter 40, which in Isaiah chapter 40 has a prophecy of one who will come to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. It's a prophecy about John the Baptist coming and preparing the way of the Lord. Well, this is what the prophet Isaiah writes, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness, make a straight highway for our God in the desert. Now, the the one for whom John would be preparing the way, Isaiah says it is God himself. Well, earlier in Isaiah, in the verses that Angela just read for us a, a few moments ago, Isaiah writes in chapter 9, verse 6, 
For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Who is this son? I know this son is Jesus. Who is Jesus? He is the Mighty God. The Apostle John writes at the beginning of his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, who is this divine word that John speaks of? This word that was God, that word that is God. Well, later in the same chapter, down in verses 14 and 15, the apostle John writes this, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This word is a person. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him, not the Apostle John, John the Baptist. John the Baptist testified concerning him and exclaimed, This was the one of whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me, because he existed before me. This word that was God, this word that is God, is Jesus Christ. I could point to to many other examples in the Bible But for Jesus to be described as the Son of God is to be described as God himself. Friends, Christians affirm that God is three in one. He is one in essence. He is one in nature, but he exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And we see all three of these at work in in our chapter. Gabriel is a messenger of God the Father, Jesus is described as the Son of God uh, and the Spirit of God who empowers John and has the power to give life, which you should know is an attribute of God only to be able to give life, the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary. Uh, So God's plan of redemption involves all three members of the Trinity. God the Father is God. Jesus is God. God the Spirit is God. God is three in one. And Jesus, as the Son of God, is fully God. The other thing that we see about Jesus in these these opening verses of Luke's gospel is that Jesus is God's everlasting king who will reign over his everlasting kingdom. Look again at verses 32 and 33 of the text. Gabriel tells Mary that he, Jesus, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So Gabriel announces that that Jesus will have the throne of his father David. Again, this is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy about the coming Messiah. It's fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy about the coming of a king. In 2 Samuel 7, when God makes his covenant with David, the the great king of Israel, when God makes his covenant with David, he promises him that one day he will provide a king in his line and he will establish his throne forever. Well, John makes it clear, or not John, Luke makes it clear in these these opening verses that that king is Jesus. Again, if we go back to Isaiah 9, which Angela just read, uh, Isaiah goes on to write this about the son who will be given about Jesus. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom, 
to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. So again, Luke points us to the fact that that the coming of Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament expectations for a king who would come and reign with justice and righteousness. God was at work establishing his kingdom. God's kingdom was being inaugurated in the coming of Jesus Christ. This kingdom would not be limited to the nation of Israel, but as we will see as we continue to progress through Luke and as we see in so many other places of Scripture, uh, his kingdom would extend to all tribes and tongues and nations. It would extend to all who would believe in Jesus' name and become citizens of God's kingdom. Those who repent of their sins and believe in Jesus, well, they become citizens of God's kingdom and they have Jesus as their king. Well, so friends, what I, what I really want you to see is that, that Gabriel's announcement of John's conception, and Gabriel's announcement to Mary about the birth of Jesus Christ are supposed to draw your attention to one place. That person, God, Jesus, fully God, fully man. God was at work revealing his promised plan of redemption that he is accomplishing in Jesus. Luke is directing your attention to who Jesus is. Don't miss it. As we come through Luke's gospel, don't miss Jesus. Well, and finally, that takes us to the final point of the sermon this afternoon, which is a mixed response, a mixed response. So at the same time that Luke is directing your attention to who this child is, to who Jesus is, at the same time he is doing that, he's also directing your attention to how you should respond to Jesus. In these verses, we see two different responses to God's miraculous work. We see the response of, of Zechariah on one hand as the angel Gabriel comes and gives him the news about John. And we see the response of Mary as the angel Gabriel comes to her and gives her the news about Jesus. When the angel Gabriel tells Zechariah the amazing news that he will have a son, well, Zechariah asks in verse 18, how can I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. In other words, Zechariah doubted. It sounded too good to be true. Zechariah wanted to know how he could be sure that this was actually going to happen. Uh, he wanted a sign. Uh, he wanted Gabriel to provide him a sign that the words that he had just spoken were true. Well, I love Gabriel's response in verse 19. How can you know? Well, because an angel of the Lord is standing in front of you telling you, what more do you need? But Gabriel also disciplines Zechariah for his doubt, and he tells him that he won't be able to speak until the day that his word is fulfilled, the day of John's birth. Uh, as we will see next week at the end of chapter one, that is exactly what happened. So he tells Zechariah that his words will be fulfilled in time, um, and in, in some way, he actually does give Zechariah another sign as he disciplines him. He, he makes him mute, and he tells Zechariah, once his son is born, he will be able to speak again. Uh, so I don't want to be too hard on Zechariah. We'll see next week that uh, he praises the Lord for the birth of his son when John does come. But at this point in time, his response is one of doubt. Zechariah's response is one of doubt. When we come to 
to Mary's response to Gabriel's amazing pronouncement, it actually sounds very similar to the question that, that Zechariah asked to Gabriel. Uh, in verse 34, uh, we read that Mary asked the angel, how can this be since I have not had sexual relations with a man? How am I going to have a baby? But the angel provides no rebuke to Mary. And I think that's because Mary is not doubting whether the angel Gabriel's words are true, but she is wondering how it will happen. Now, if we go back to Zechariah as a priest, Zechariah would have surely known the story of Abraham and Sarah and how God had given them a son in their old age. A virgin birth, however, was something new. And so as, as one pastor said, Zechariah wanted evidence. Zechariah wanted a sign, but Mary wanted understanding. Mary simply wanted to understand how these things will be so. Well, once Gabriel does give an explanation of how it would happen, Mary responds with humble and obedient faith. See, I am the Lord's servant. May it happen to me as you have said. Mary believes and Mary submits herself to this word from the Lord that has come to her. So friends, what are, what are you supposed to take away from these two different responses to Gabriel's message? Well, the, these differing responses of, of Zechariah on one hand and, and Mary on the other, they're really just small representations of the responses that many will have to Jesus throughout his ministry. And we will see these responses throughout the gospel as we continue to walk through the gospel of Luke over the coming months. Uh, some doubt who Jesus is. Uh, they doubt his words. They don't believe his miracles. They doubt and demand further signs. They reject Jesus. They reject the revelation of God standing right before them. And yet on the other hand, there are some who respond in faith when they are confronted with Jesus. They believe his words, they believe the signs he performs, and they believe he is who he says he is, that he is Messiah, that he is the Christ, that he is the son of the living God. So friends, I, in that opening context that I gave you about the gospel of Luke, I said that in many ways, Luke writes his account. He writes this gospel account as a historian. He gives you facts. He writes it in an orderly account. He gives you things that can be verified. And remember, this account in Luke's gospel would have been written just probably somewhere between 30 and 50 years after Jesus' death. So these historical facts are things that could have been verified and would have been known by the people he writes to. So in many ways, Luke writes his account as a historian, but Luke does not write as a disinterested historian. He is not just writing to give you facts about Jesus's life and ministry. He does that. He tells you about what Jesus has done. He tells you about who Jesus is, but he is not just giving you facts. Under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke is interpreting those facts for you. He isn't just telling you how Jesus's conception happened. He isn't just telling you some story that he had heard. He is telling you who Jesus is. He's not just teaching you about Jesus. He is calling you to believe in Jesus. He is calling you to believe in Jesus, to believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, 
that Jesus is the Savior. He is calling you to believe that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. And as he writes in in verse 4 of these opening verses, he is giving you reason to believe. So friends, if, if you are here and you are not a Christian, if you're not sure about these claims of Christianity, if you're not sure that Jesus really is who he says he is, that, yeah, I mean, it sounds pretty good that I might be able to have eternal life if I would just repent and believe in Jesus, but do you really want me to believe that Jesus came, that God came, he took on human flesh, he died, and he came to life again? If you're on the fence about who Jesus is, well, I hope from these opening, uh, I just want to ask you that, that from these opening verses of Luke's gospel, from these two responses that we see in Zechariah and Mary, I want to ask you, what will your response be? What are you going to do with this good news of the gospel? What are you going to do with this picture of who Jesus is? What are you going to do with this good news that is not too good to be true? Are you going to remain skeptical? Are you going to remain on the fence? Or will you, like Mary, believe? Well, my prayer is that this very week, this very day, this very hour, this very minute, that you might believe, that you will respond like Mary, that you will submit your life to Jesus as your king, that you will tell Jesus that you are his humble servant, that you will repent and believe, and that you will take up your cross and follow him. The friends, God miraculously intervened in human history to accomplish his plan of redemption, Well, God is still at work miraculously intervening and calling people to himself by regenerating their their hearts, by giving them new life. He has made it clear through his mighty work in history. He has made it clear who Jesus is, and he is calling you to repent and believe the good news that salvation is in no other name but Jesus. If you're here this afternoon and you are a Christian, my prayer for you is that you rejoice the coming of Jesus Christ is good news. We're going to see this in just a couple weeks uh, when the, the angels come and announce that good news to the shepherd, that the coming of Jesus Christ is good news. And friends, he did not just send Jesus to Mary. He sent Jesus for you. You are the recipient of the Lord's favor. You are the recipient of God's grace. Praise the Lord for Jesus Christ. So friends, if if you are a Christian, my prayer is that you will be led to rejoice in your Savior, that you will rejoice in the fact that God did intervene in human history, that he has accomplished his plan of redemption, and that if you are a Christian, he has given you new life in Christ.